what that means. And the second elephant in the room. If you remember, we are spending some time on the conundrum of having light created on the first day, but not having the sun and the moon to provide it until the third day. This kind of a conundrum is difficult, raises many questions. Uh, after presenting some uh, variant views, I uh, settled on the view of the rabbis who say that this was a different light than the physical light we see from the sun and the moon. This was the light of the seventh day of creation. Uh, some versions, as Rashi brings, say th three days, first three days of creation, because on the fourth the sun was uh, created and now provided light. But uh, whatever version you take, there was some kind of a different light that did not require the luminaries. Okay, now what happened to that light? They say that this light was removed from the world and was saved for the righteous in the world to come. And the other clue that they give us is that this light enabled people to see from one end of the world to another. So here is the big clue. It, it would appear that this is what I call the light of discernment, insight, understanding. If you have two things at the far ends of the world and you mentally connect them, you find something similar, you classify them in the same way, you see an inner connection, you have now seen from one end of the world to the other. And another clue to this this being this light, is that, as, as we discussed uh, already, uh, the formulation, and God said, and there was. This formulation, as I had hopefully shown satisfactorily, uh, is used only for things that are created in heaven. Uh, it seems that for something to just come into being, it has to be in heaven. For something to be translated from the heavenly vision into the actual physical objects, you need intermediaries. Okay, so far so good. The way we approach the conundrum, light created on the first day and the luminaries only on the third day, was to propose that uh, the light was a different light than the light of the luminaries on the third and the fourth day. Um, luminaries were created on the fourth day. So uh, one proposal was that this was the light of discernment, as we just spoke. The other one um, referenced the idea that our vision works by us throwing a light out of our eyes, and um, then it hits the target and returns back, sort of a radar uh, in ancient times. And that was a very prevalent theory. In fact, the dominant theory, as we discussed, a whole number of uh, early authorities who held this idea, and even in our days, about 50% of the population still thinks that this is how light works. So, um, we know that vision doesn't work this way. We have science. We know that uh, it's the light coming from the objects or bouncing off objects. We know that we, there is a retina, and there is a macula, and there are uh, 
cells that capture this light and conduct it to the brain, and that's where we form a mental representation of this light. But that's not the position expressed here in the Torah. Uh, the light that was created on the first day is not that light which is in the sun and the moon, it's the light that we produce. And today we come to the verse that says, And God saw light, that it was good. We'll leave the part about its goodness for another time. But I'm just trying to understand what it means that God saw uh, the light. Uh, how do you see the light? Uh, first of all, um, if you say that this was the light of discernment, uh, then what it means is that he understood that the light is good. And uh, we find uh, this kind of anthropomorphic uh, ascribing of uh, the way humans do things to God all throughout the Bible, especially Genesis. And Maimonides has already dealt with the subject uh, that this is uh, the use of words with multiple meanings. Like here, he saw means he understood, which is how we use the word in many languages, even today. And there are many verses that uh, use it in this way. For example, we have a verse in Jeremiah, the famous potter story in 18, verse 3 to 4, talking about the potter making pots. And he reworked it into another vessel, and it seemed good, as it, I'm sorry, as it seemed good to the potter to do, discernment, as he understood it to be good to do. Now, with uh, that, the question becomes, how do you deal with the science in the Bible, which clearly appears to be faulty to us? Uh, this, this is not a new topic. Already in late antiquity, uh, scholars realized that certain things are placed by the Bible are not uh, scientifically correct. And there's a lot about the book of God and the book of nature. Uh, Augustine wrote about it, and Maimonides wrote about it, uh, and there were various ways to explain it. The acuteness of the problem, however, is that we live in a holy scientific age, and there are many things that um, we understand differently. So last week I proposed the concept of translation. We need to understand what scientific theory the Bible used. We need to understand the message, and we need to translate the message into our language. So focus on the message, what it tells, not what it says, and certainly not how it says it. Okay, very good. But uh, now a, a listener uh, asked me a follow-up uh, issue. Uh, that's for science. Uh, how do we deal with the fact that the society in the time of the Bible was so different? To extend the argument, they thought in different ways. They lived in a different type of social organization. Maybe they even considered certain things good that we no longer consider so in our day and vice versa. So, is there something to teach us, or isn't there something to teach us in the Bible? This is a core issue. 
uh, that the modern age has imposed on religious communities and something that we have to deal with. I think that the same method of translation would also work. Now, let's just take a step back. Why should we care about lessons that the, the uh, Hebrew Bible teaches? Why is it important? Why bother with the hard work of translation? Why not just abandon it and rely on contemporary thinkers? So, as we discussed once before, the problem is that we lose a great deal of wisdom. The traditional basis for how things are done, how the society is still structured, the institutions of the society, and we buy into perpetual conflict. If there is no tradition, if there are no mutually agreed upon things, then every man will have a different idea of what's right. And to, to some degree, we're beginning to see this in the struggles of American society in our own time and age. The loss of the moral, cultural, political background of the Hebrew Bible means that we lose what unifies us and we no longer hold the same things. Uh, will we be able to create new things, new societies, new ways in which everyone will work together? Very doubtful. This has been tried in the past century in many settings. New ideas have come and resulted in very unequal societies, in rivers of blood, in great oppression uh, and uh, collapse of uh, that social organization. So the Bible remains. Uh, it's going to remain no matter what we uh, try to do with it. And uh, if it falls, it will fall with great impact and great destruction. So it's worthwhile to know what it has to say, and it's worthwhile to explore its ideas. And if we don't do that, we're in for a lot of trouble. Okay, so the Bible is necessary, and we need to understand it. So how do we translate from a totally different milieu, environment, social structure into our, our own uh, very flat and very different society? So we have to deal with several issues. One is a change in mentality. One, loss of conceptual background. We no longer all start from the same assumptions. The biblical society as most societies in antiquity, were based on honor. An individual was not only representing himself or his nuclear family, a modern concept, but represented his extended family, his clan, his tribe, later his country, his religion, and therefore had obligations to someone else. We can call that accountability. With obligations, with being a part of another society, came a sense of purpose. I think less depression and less mental illness because people belonged and they did not have to build their esteem and they were important because they were uh, a uh, McNulty or McNamara. They belonged to this clan. That was while they were worthwhile 
and they didn't have to deal with the questions of who am I, am I <coughs> identity and why I'm here. With hierarchy instead of flatness uh, that we experience now, uh, people owed somebody fealty uh, and were obligated to them, and in return, the others who owed fealty to them. They knew exactly where they belonged in the hierarchy. That's very different from now. Collectivism versus individualism. Senses of value and relation between genders. Also, how we dealt with the weak and the poor and oppressed. Not to say that it was perfect in the past, but it ain't perfect now either. Plus, we fight about it. Okay, so uh, what happens when you don't share the same assumptions is that religion suffers, because religion is built on those assumptions. The dramatic collapse of Christianity in the West is one good example. Uh, Christianity is built on several assumptions. One of them is the original sin. But people don't believe in sin, and people don't believe in original sin. They don't believe that people are bad. They think we're great. Uh, God used to be huge and filled the world. And he left a little corner for our free will. But he was right there on top of us. The sages say one who walks with pride is pushing up the feet of the divine presence. Now, nobody quite is sure where God is. Uh, First, he turned into a big teddy bear in the sky who loves everybody and doesn't ask for anything. Uh, Then became a method of asserting our individual probity. Whatever we do, it's because God wants it. And then he kind of uh, receded even more, where it's just an echo in modern culture, not a presence. So no, 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 no surprise that religion is losing ground to such a degree. Um, many of the assumptions of the Greco-Roman world and Neoplatonic views uh, are simply no longer understood. More, more, many words are no longer understood. The younger generation cannot define what it means to have a duty, what it means to have be obligated. Uh, there are many words that no longer seem to have meaning, <coughs> and other words now have new meanings. So, um, at the very least, if we want to restore some semblance of uh, common in inherited uh, wisdom, we need to understand what the Bible says. But we're going to have to trust from these things, from their conceptual background, from the honor-based society, from obligation-based society rather than rights-based society, from hierarchical worldview uh, to a flat uh, worldview, from mixed collective individual perspective to our individual perspective. For example, uh, President Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, right? Universe of, of that order. But uh, now it has to make sense for me. This has to be something I enjoy, and I enjoy it based on just who I am.
And you can't question that, because if you question who I am, you threaten my identity. Fine, it is what it is, uh, but uh, translation is absolutely necessary. And again, to translate, you have to understand the source. That means that you have to understand a lot about the world in which the Bible was given. You have to understand how it was organized, how people perceived it, because you expect that the lawgiver would speak in the language that people understand. You have to then isolate and define the idea, translate it into our conceptual world, and then explain it. So that's what we'll continue trying to do. One has to know the source language, one has to understand the destination language, uh, know uh, the idioms and the forms of both languages, and know how to explain. <clears throat> the danger in this approach, of course, is that just like in translation, translation can be more literal or less literal. Some translations read like uh, a word-to-word -word unwieldy restatement of the original, and some read almost like a different book. In both cases, you can say that you are translating the ideas. So when you're faced with a difficult destination language, such as the one in which we live now, the concepts of today, and uh, the temptation will be to verge far afield, uh, get the idea in the original, and define it in a very large and general way in the modern lingo. Uh, so at some point we may lose authenticity. So this is uh, something that all translators have to, to struggle with. This is not unique uh, to the art of translating ideas. It's also a part of translating text. Now I'm going to take a step back for a second and offer an apology. Uh, it was also mentioned by a respondent to me that uh, I presented a certain individual, certain explanation, and I spent only seven minutes on it. I did not fully explain it, and that that is in itself not respectful. So I, I acknowledge this. I understand that it's very difficult um, to deal with ideas as, apart from individuals. Uh, it's probably the hardest thing to do. We must be respectful. We must not divide. We may discuss and we may disagree, but not divide. Uh, we need to stay in good relationship as human beings, and we cannot become ad hominem. Uh, not, not that that necessarily was done, but there was a perception of that. So what would be the key? Um, on the one hand, you certainly can't allow non-truth to reign unchallenged, and that is our obligation in the field of the war of ideas, to oppose incorrect ideas and to speak the truth uh, as, as private and as partial and as individual as it may be. On the other hand, we must be unfailingly respectful. So that is what I accept of myself. In the future, I will not uh, mention specific names. If anyone wants to know more about the subject, they can reach out to me directly through Hebrew Bible to the World on Gmail uh, or through the blog avakesh.com.
Um, a great uh, rabbi uh, passed away last week, Rabbi Mishum Dovitz Levechik. Um, he was a cousin of my own teacher, uh, and he was a strong believer in opposing and correct ideas, but he never mentioned names, and he would not allow names of people proposing certain ideas to be mentioned in his presence. That was uh, his way of walking in the middle, and it's a good one to adapt. Now, a few more words on the concept of divine perspective versus human perspective. Uh, one may ask, so the Bi- if the Bible was given by the author with infinite knowledge and omniscience, why uh, wasn't it written in the factually scientific manner? And why was it not written what some people might think was uh, uh, should be a morally say, uh, correct uh, way? Uh, for example, uh, why are there incidents of oppression? Uh, where at the instance where the Bible appears to certify, although if you look carefully, there's usually criticism in there someplace, if you, if you read really carefully, but why does it seem to not criticize more openly certain behaviors and patterns of action we no longer would accept? And I think the answer is like this. Imagine that you were God. And you had to give a book or a set of teachings to a ancient society. And you knew that if they don't buy into it and accept it, it your book will disappear. You couldn't impose it because you honored human freedom. So, here's the conundrum. If you give it in a way that they can't grasp, you fail. If you give it in the way they can grasp, the subsequent generations might see it as antiquated. What do you do? So, we spoke in one of the earliest talks about how the Bible is written in a very different way than any other work of literature where it's packed with omnisignificance. Uh, words carry multiple meanings. Structures point to implied meaning. Uh, there are multiple perspectives in the book and within a sin- single narrative. Uh, the heroes become villains, and the villains become heroes in the middle of the story. Uh, parallels between different stories create stereoscopic vision. Many, many, many um, implements that pack much more meaning into the text than on the surface it appears to have. And I would suggest that that's about the limit of what anybody can do. You can't fill a balloon with more air than it can contain. And no matter how ingenious the writer is, 
and how intelligent, they can only pack words and text composed of words with that much meaning. So it was absolutely the best effort, but inevitably there would be change. And as we see in our day, the Bible is still alive and kicking. It still is a wonderful and highly influential document, even though the world has changed. Why? Because it was accepted once and accepted again and again for generations, for thousands of years, and it shaped our institutions and structures. And uh, so that was the approach that worked, and that was the correct approach. One other observation I would add. I was reading uh, Leon Cass's commentary on Genesis, and he made a one short sentence comment that set me to thinking. He said that the Torah presents things from a human perspective in a human language. And what this reminded me of, of the revolution in philosophy, the earlier thinkers had a outwardly built philosophy. They observed something and they drew conclusions then they applied it to humans. Uh, religious philosophers started out with the book of God and developed moral theories and uh, natural science and uh, methods of reasoning based on what they read there and then they applied it to the humans. With Renaissance came the statement that uh, no, do not let anything human be strange to you. And man is the measure of all things. And we've gradually moved in philosophy to rejecting all external structures. We now build from the inside out. M m all modern philosophical uh, movements built from men out. This is how we perceive it. Uh, this is our assumptions and axioms, and now we'll create a philosophical structure from there. Existentialism, phenomenalism, whatever it be, uh, it, the reader deconstructs the text. Uh, it's all from inside out. Perhaps one of the goals of writing the Bible in such a human-centered way was specifically to allow for our time, to enable it to survive as a document in the age in which human beings dwarfs the sun. Uh, even in our days, we can use our immediate experience to relate to the long-gone heroes of the Bible, and to so many structures which still exist or we see vestiges of in our life that were fully alive and potent at that time, but they're still a part of our experience and therefore we can relate to them. Perhaps God wrote the book in the language of those men, but as he did with meaning, packed it also with a way for us to understand. Thank you very much for listening. With all blessings, till the next time.